I asked Dorset Police. Look, this is a big problem. He's a prolific rapist in the Dorset area. And do you know what the Dorset Police said to me? Not our problem. For this week's podcast, I talked to Becky, a victim of the UK's most prolific rapist, John Warboys. You might remember John Warboys. He was dubbed the Black Cab Rapist by the press. And it took several years and the bravery and tenacity of a number of his victims, survivors, to get him finally in prison. And I happened to live with a brilliant human rights lawyer who represented some of the women that the police had failed. The police believing that, of course, a black cab driver would never commit such acts, would never drug and rape women. And in fact, I remember back in the early 2000s when Ken Livingstone was mayor of London and on the underground there were several posters warning women against getting unlicensed minicabs when they'd been drinking, saying, get a black cab, it's safe. And we all thought that was ridiculous anyway. First of all, it's victim blaming. The photograph on the poster showed a woman trying to scream with a man's hand over her mouth. So we weren't pointing at the rapist, which we should have been. And secondly, well, I'm sorry, but rapists come in all stripes, in all forms, in all professions and jobs. And so the idea that somehow, because black cab drivers were licensed and part of the London transport system, that they wouldn't do such a thing. Anyway, so, so Becky has been fighting for years to get answers from the police about his offending in Bournemouth. So Becky lives in Dorset, known to be monumentally bad when it comes to policing, sex crimes, violent crimes against women. And in fact, it's a town of unheard victims. This is Becky talking about her experiences of a sexual predator and her quest for justice. So Becky, I know that you have spoken about your very bad experience with Dorset Police in terms of their investigation of serious sexual offences. And that has been really prominent in the media recently, of course, because of the Gaia Pope case. Tell me a little bit about that, because I know you've supported the family of Gaia Pope. Just give us a little bit of background as to how Dorset Police have been exposed as really not fit for purpose when it comes to investigating serious sexual offences? Well, from the Gaia Pope um, situation, which obviously Maya is probably very well placed to talk about, um, there was numerous failings um, on assisting finding her um, when she went missing. And then there were cover-ups on information and phone calls that... Um, the family had made to Dorset Police and Gaia herself had made to Dorset Police. Um, So that was that. But my story really begins with the Met Police, actually. Um, The Met Police were the biggest barrier that prevented me from then holding Dorset Police to task, or at least having a conversation with Dorset Police. So, you know, I couldn't even properly get near Dorset Police because the Met Police prevented me from being able to do that. Okay, so let's step back a little and have a look at the scandal that is the case of John Warboys, the black cab driver, prolific rapist and sexual offender, thankfully right now languishing in prison, thanks to 
a number of women that have made sure that he does not get out to offend again because his man is still dangerous. This really was quite indicative, wasn't it, of the complacency of the Metropolitan Police when it comes to helping women get justice when they've been raped and sexually assaulted. Yeah, and, you know, it's a system that you naively think exists to support the victim until you get in it. Um, And, you know, and I'm sure hopefully not everyone has had the experiences that the other victims of John Warboys have. But, you know, my work as a trauma therapist, I hear to the contrary. You know, it's rare that I hear someone that's had a very positive and supportive experience all the way through. It might be that the police support them in that instance, but then the CPS don't proceed with the charges. And even if it does get to court, what happens then is they get, you know, a 45-minute sentence, if that, um, you know, which then leaves the victim feeling unsafe again in the world, which, you know, for anyone that's been sadly on the receiving end of sexual violence, I think it completely shatters your ability to feel safe in the world and to feel safe with people in ways that you probably won't recognise and in ways that you may take years and years to unfold that that's the, you know, the core impact on your life. So I encountered John Warboys in sort of 2002 when I was in my sort of a long time ago in my late, you know, mid 20s, mid to late 20s. And, um, you know, at that time, no one had ever, you know, I live I live in the south of England, in Bournemouth, um, which is instrumental to this story. You hadn't really heard of people being drugged. That's the sort of thing that happened in New York. That's not the sort of thing that would happen in your local bar in, in Bournemouth. So, you know, we weren't vigilant about being having our uh, drinks drugged. But, you know, again, um, it's not the victim's responsibility. Why should we have to be vigilant about looking whether some dude has dropped a... <laughs> A drug in our drink. It's absolutely outrageous and it makes me so angry the way that we have to think about these things. You know, you know, nobody, when they have their Rolex taken, is asked why they were wearing a Rolex. Or right. were they asking for it because they were wearing a watch that tracks attention? I don't think anyone's probably been asked that on an interview. Anyway, so I then, you know, came out of my local bar club you know in Bournemouth my friends were staying on I wanted to come home I didn't live too far away from the bar but you know every girl has been drummed in don't walk home and I certainly would never walk home. and it wasn't you know it would have been a half an hour walk which was never going to happen um you know always be safe and get a taxi so I came out of the the club and at this time all of Bournemouth taxis were custard yellow like you didn't have lots of different cabs like you do now Um, So I came out and my option is to walk to a taxi rank about five minutes away or sometimes you're lucky enough to flag a custard yellow car um, down and and they'll stop and and put you in. That's always the safer option, you think. So along came a black cab. Now I was working in London a lot at the time, so familiar with the black cab and their reputation is the trusted taxi drivers of well yes i, I mean i remember yeah in london when when ken livingstone was mayor so a good few years back i remember this really to me deeply offensive um series of ads on the underground which showed a woman screaming help no no with some man's hand over her mouth and underneath it said do not get an unlicensed minicab get a black cab, be safe. And we went mad because, of course, you can't say who's a rapist and who isn't and that it's women's fault for choosing an unlicensed minicab. 
It was outrageous. Completely. Again, it's not, on, I mean, obviously we, as humans, we do our best to take care of our well-being, you know, in all sorts of capacity. But so I was relieved on a dark night about one o'clock in the morning that this black cab came along and I thought, that's unusual. You'd never see a black cab in Bournemouth. But I flagged it, it had its light on, but who am I to know what, what Bournemouth licence, ta- you know, what taxi licences are giving out and giving not. You know, he's, le- he's licensed, he's a black cab. So I um, flagged him down and I was so grateful when he stopped. Um, told him where I wanted to go, popped on in. And, you know, thank you, thank you for stopping because, you know, my other option was to walk five minutes on my own to get a cab and wait at a rank. So he, you know, this is before apps <laughs> um, and everything like that. So I then got in the cab and from the get-go, he was the quintessential chirpy, chatty taxi driver, wanted to talk. I didn't want to talk. Um, I just wanted to go home. But he was relentless and he was relentless and relentless and then he was already sort of manipulating you. This is what people don't understand, coercive control. They do not understand coercive control. That's really interesting because, I mean, even when we're talking about Getting in a cab, so speaking personally, when I've got into a cab and there's one of those chirpy chappies and they want to talk, I'm socialised to not tell them to shut up. I'm socialised to, not even as many men would probably feel comfortable in saying, sorry, I've got to do some reading, or sorry, I'm tired, or sorry, I've got to make a call. I've sometimes pretended to take a call on my phone to stop their relentless questioning and chat and and I think it's really difficult for women, even as tough, strong feminists, to not acquiesce to that. So is that is that what you mean by kind of coercive control and manipulation? You know, a lot. I regularly I see men and women who can't believe. You know, they they can't believe what they've experienced because um, you know coercive control. We're all conditioned to align with each other for safety. You know, it's a primitive program that we have. But also, I think, you know, there's there's another thing that happens when we feel deeply in danger, um, which is that we can fawn. So in order to be safe, we have to align with the danger. So we try and friend the danger to try and feel safe. Um, and, you know, again, we've been conditioned to be polite, to be, you know, to be seen as being polite, but, you know, he was, he, his, in, my intention was to get home. His intention was to drug me and rape me. And that was from the get-go. So, you know, his complete grooming of me in this, and, and the very familiar story that we've all read in the mu- news about him having this big win, but he's so excited and so enthusiastic. And he's then going, well, I've got this champagne, I can't drink it because I'm driving the cab. So he said, I've just won a huge amount of money on the lottery. Is that right? Yeah. And I'm zero impressed because I just want to get home. I'm not interesting. It's all just background, background, background. But he goes on and on and on and on. A bit like that. We've all had that made that is like, come on, just one more drink before we go home. You don't want one more drink, but you know if you have one more drink, you're going to get home quicker. So it becomes easier to just have that one more drink because you know you can get home quicker as a result of that, and even though it's really not what you want to do. Um, and he's like that. He is relentless in positioning you where he wants to be. And that, in the, in the end, it becomes easier just to accept that drink um, on the way home. Anyway, I had a few sips of it. I mean, you know, he, he's... 
at the time, my first thought, before even the drinks come out, my first thought is, what's a black cab doing in Bournemouth? I questioned him about it. I said, what's a black cab doing in Bournemouth? We never see black cabs in Bournemouth. And he explained he lives in Bournemouth, which he did, um, and he sometimes worked both. Well, who was I to question that? Now, just to cut back, about four or five months before, I'd got in a yellow cab, and I think I had counted to him again, and from the same pickup place, right? Really? So you think yeah. that, that Warboys, months yes. earlier, was driving a regular Bournemouth yellow cab? Yes. I've also had that confirmed by someone who I know is a cab driver to say that he was. But this time I was with a guy and two girls. And this time, so I'm with a, you know, really six foot three guy and, you know, another girl and we're all going in the same direction. And he was like, hey, I've got champagne. Can you, you know, just have this? And my guy friend thought it was hilarious. So mid twenties, you know, it's, and so that had happened before. Now, let me tell you, that bottle of champagne was half empty. Really? So who had been in the cab the night before? So. And why was a black cab driver? drinking alcohol why did he have a bottle of alcohol in his cab the first thing was in the yellow cab and he wasn't drinking it that's the whole point he can't drink it because he's a good taxi driver but he needs you to celebrate calm for me and he goes on and on and on and on um and obviously so that so i think i encountered him that first time but the second time i didn't pay any attention to the driver though so I couldn't say that that was his face. But the story was exactly the same. So here I am again, and I'm, you know, I even said, I, I think I've met you before, sort of thing. Anyway, I'm watching him, and he had a face very similar, the narrowing eyes, the square jaw we're very familiar with. He had a face that was similar to someone I dated when I was like 18. So I was thinking, that's strange, he looks a bit like so-and-so, which is why I distinctively remembered his face. And anyway, got to outside my house um, and my driveway at the time was, my place was set back from the road. So there's a driveway to go down. Um, but I always get cabs to drop me off at, at, by the main road. And I walk down the drive, even though for years my friends has gone, get them to drop you right off outside. Thank God I didn't. Um, so he's then trying to keep me in the cab. He's opening up lots of conversations, conversations and making it feel rude to get out he's also then trying to top tried to top me up um i've had by the way i'd had one sip of this drink and it tasted disgusting so even my people pleasing me couldn't do that to myself because it just didn't taste good it was warm it tasted bitter it wasn't right um so i was trying to like pretend to sip it but i was you know sipping some of it and then he's trying to keep me in the cab. I now can't get out of the cab either because I've got the drink, you know, you, you can't get out. It was only, I don't know if I got out of the cab or not. I've spent years and years trying to logically um, risk assess. How did he get me down the drive? How did he know which flat I was in? How would he have, did he try all the doors? Did he not? Did I get home? You know, let's be quite clear, I wasn't drunk when I got in the cab. Right. I have a distinct memory of having that cup by the side of my kitchen sink and tipping out the contents in the morning. But I won't bet my life on that. I, I wonder, understanding as I do now how the mind works with trauma, whether or not I've created that as a safety mechanism or not. Anyway, I got on with my life. Um, and then... 
forward wind many years later, uh, 2009, I open up, you know, I see on the news this familiar face. And then I read the story. Um, you know, at that time, nobody really read the local paper of my age. You know, it was full of granny's fates and things like that. Yeah. So um, I then saw the, the pictures in the stores of, of the headlines. This is in the, the local um, Bournemouth Echo. And there was the story of this offence and the fact that he was now being um, sentenced. So why was... The case of John Warboys, the prolific black cab rapist that operated in London, as far as police were concerned, why was it in the Bournemouth press? Because he lived in Bournemouth at one stage? That, I couldn't, it was, I did see something else looking for further victims, asking if anyone had been uh, a victim. I've seen it in the paper twice back in, you know, around that 2009 time. So at some, at some stage, police knew fine well that there were very likely victims of John Warboys in Dorset. Possibly, very likely, specifically in Bournemouth. Yes. And I've had that confirmed to me by the Met Police as well, um, which I'll get on to. So I then, um, I saw that he was then being convicted. I couldn't be certain whether or not I was a, a, I was definitely a victim of him, his story and him trying to drug me. But whether or not he did or not, I didn't know. So because he's gone to prison, um, I thought, okay, you know, there's nothing I can do. You know, you don't, you don't know how the justice system works until you get involved with it. And especially back then. I'd also yeah. read that all the victims had been laughed at. I'd also read that no one had taken them seriously. Um, you know, if you want a message of how to come forward, that, you know, that right there, that's going to stop you. Um, about the same offender. So I got on with my life. Um, a bait with some issues about getting taxis that I didn't understand. You know, it wasn't consciously. The John Warboys issue wasn't at the con consciously at the front of my mind. Um, and then we've moved forward to 2018, when one day I suddenly see his face everywhere. You know, I'm, on the, I'm in the gym and every screen in the gym has got his face on and that he's about to be released by the parole board. And I'm like, what? And then I see the other brave victims who were involved in the 2009 convictions um, trying to work to get him get his parole revoked I mean he's a dangerous man you know yeah. and the nature of his crimes mean that he doesn't weaken with age because you can drug anyone you don't need to be powerful and strong well and uh, he, he obviously hadn't coughed to the vast majority of sexual assaults that he carried out. He never pleaded yeah. guilty. And, as you know, for six years of the eight years that he was sentenced, he was only actually sentenced for 12 offences, when actually there was a known over 100. Now, I question that known over 100 because um, there's a whole town here in Bournemouth that have been totally unheard in terms of the victims. So I, seeing what these brave women were trying to do... I knew that there was a whole town here in Bournemouth that had been unheard and there were many victims in this town. How do you know um, there were many victims? Have you ever been contacted by other women? I haven't to date, but I know from the... I, I, I originally encountered information in the Echo that said that there was a victim in Bournemouth. And because all of those parts is what told me 
that what I had experienced and that man was exactly identical. Um, so forward wind to, to the trying to stop him being released by the parole board, which is just madness in itself. I thought I've got to help here. I may have information to help. So I came, I saw on the news, I didn't want to go to the police because the police were still the people that laughed at the victims. So I contacted the human rights lawyer that was representing the victims, Harriet Wistrick, and I contacted her and I said, look, I'm from Bournemouth and this has been happening in Bournemouth. Also, don't forget there was that first occasion in the taxi where there was already half a bottle of champagne missing. So someone else has already been drinking John Warboy's drinks. Well, I mean, we know from, from his pattern... Yeah. of offending how prolific he was he's not yeah. just going to decide to come to Bournemouth target one woman you and then leave everybody else alone I mean this man is probably the most prolific sex offender that I've ever heard about in more than four decades since I've been campaigning uh, on this issue. and I think it's important to remember he's a mobile taxi driver so a mobile rapist he's a mobile yeah. rapist so he also had a home here in Bournemouth all the way through that time. In fact, he still had a home here when I came forward in 2018. Um, and that, that, that home is probably six, seven roads away from where I live. And um, I, how he got all the um, legal aid that he got where he had still half a million quids worth of flat down the road, I really don't know. And not only um, that, but he was involved in the sex industry, wasn't he, in Bournemouth? He worked in a strip joint. I don't know if he worked in the strip joint in Bournemouth or whether or not he worked in the strip... He was a stripper elsewhere. That I don't know. But I do know he was working as a wheel clamper in Bournemouth prior to being a taxi driver. So he'd been in the area quite a long time. And that I've had confirmed to me too. Um, so I came forward with my story just wanting to go, hey, if you want to keep this guy behind bars, I think there's a whole town that needs looking into here. Also, I was reading, it was a massive story in the news, and all I'm reading is London. London, 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 London. And I'm sitting there going, he's not just a rapist in London. He's a rapist in Bournemouth. Why is this not being heard? So it, then the police, um, Harriet Wistrick, passed my statement onto the Met Police, and then they got in contact with me. Now, unlike the other victims, on the whole, you know, the, um, the, the police that I directly dealt with um, were obviously very much under the microscope and, you know, they did manage, um, they did manage um, me and that situation, you know, as, as well as can be. Obviously, not in a, what I would call a trauma-informed way, but, um, you know, I didn't have the experiences that the other victims had thankfully. But he's already a proven rapist by this point, you know, the other girls, oh my goodness, how they did what they did, you know, and thank you to them. Um, it's, so during this process, which I'd never been in before, I didn't know what this process entailed. So you do various statements, you have various phone calls, um, each time having to go over all the details. Sometimes those phone calls catch you out, you're in the supermarket, and you've got someone straight away trying to talk to you about body parts and you know parts of your body and sexual offences you know then I had to do a video um a video state uh, statement um but prior to then every single phone call I had with the Met Police which was probably about nine phone calls at this point every time I said what are you doing to find victims in Bournemouth because 
the nature of the media at the moment, which was massive, is that they're, all they're saying is it's a London rapist. And because he drugs people and carries them in their homes, there's going to be a lot of people waking up in the morning feeling awful, but not knowing that they were a victim of John Warboys. You know, it's absolutely crazy, this geographical stuff that police focus on. We saw it back in the 1970s with Peter Sutcliffe, yes. known as the Yorkshire Ripper. And there's a clue. I mean, deeply offensive moniker, obviously. But... He offended all over the country. He was a mobile killer. He was a lorry driver. And there are unsolved crimes that are very likely uh, committed by Sutcliffe. Uh, women who were murdered and the perpetrator uh, never arrested. That the police didn't even look at, look at Sutcliffe for. Because they had him down as someone who committed crimes in particular towns and cities in Yorkshire. This is madness. And yet, Warboys, as you say, he's a mobile rapist. He has a cab. He drives for a living. Sometimes cab drivers do cross county lines or they go from one city to the other on big jobs or where the work is. Why on earth did they not look at him for other offences? Well, this is where it comes in strongly for me because, um, I mean, you know, the other thing that you, know, you, know, you need to understand, I think the worst moment for me and that I find hugely traumatic actually um, was when I had to provide a photo of what I looked like back then. And back then you only took photos of yourself on holiday and with your friends, you know, it wasn't like the yep. photo culture we've got now. And it was the moment it dawned on me that that photo of me was going to be with my statement and my name and read out to him, in put in front of him in prison. I was now not anonymous to him. He knew what I looked like, to an element where I lived, and he also had an identity of, of, that, of that experience, which left me feeling enormously vulnerable, um, enormously vulnerable with no support on that. And so... I was very keen through all of this to keep raising Bournemouth. So I kept saying to the Met Police, what are you doing to make it clear that he was offending in Bournemouth? And I, eight times I asked the Met Police this question, was one of the 12 original convictions a Bournemouth one? And they said yes. Really? Eight times verbally they said yes. Was he convicted? Was one of those 12 convictions a Bournemouth offence? And they said yes. Eight times. Because I was starting to think I was going mad. Am I the only person thinking that he's a Bournemouth offender? So that's why I kept checking with them. I kept checking. And then I said, well, if so, why aren't Bournemouth Dorset Police doing anything about this? And they said, well, we've approached Dorset Police and they feel... They did everything they needed to back in 2009. And what was it that they did do in 2009 in terms of, of trying to contact victims of war boys in Bournemouth? Goodness knows. But that tells me that they knew. So when I did my video statement, which ended up having to be with Dorset Police because there was, we had like a load of snow, so the Met Police couldn't make it down. So they farmed it to Dorset Place. So I went into there to the suite to, to record my statement. And at the end of that, I asked Dorset Police, look, this is a big problem. He's a prolific rapist in the Dorset 
area. What are you doing? Because all the media is saying he's a London offender. We just need to get the narrative right here so people can feel confident to go, this happened to me. And do you know what the Dorset police said to me? Not our problem. Oh, my God. It's a Met police problem. Talk about heartless, but also... To me. Yeah, to, to a victim, but also showing their true colours when it comes to their abject failure at dealing with this issue on a broader sense. I mean, yeah. we've got, with the Guy Pope case, we've heard Connor Hayes, who yeah. is the person that Gaia, um accused of, of raping her, who's a prolific sex offender against young women and children, who yeah. served time in prison, who has been convicted more than once for sex offences. And the police did very, very little if anything, to uh, collar him. And then we've got no RASSO unit. RASSO, I think it stands for Rape and Serious Sexual Offences Unit. Yeah. They've got no RASSO, which is seen as the gold star model for detecting and preventing sexual assault and supporting victims and survivors. Which is really important because, you know, whilst they're there to do justice, right, they're not counselling service, they're there to do justice... Actually, how can you go into a system that's, if not more, or as traumatic as the offences that you've gone to the police first for? But my, my issues with Dorset Police get a lot worse. So I, you know, my, my um, charges, so they were investigated for a long period of time. Um, and I had to do an ID parade. Incidentally, I had to pay my own train tickets you know, 150 quid to go and do the ID parade. Meanwhile, John Warboys, with his half a million pound flat, is getting legal aid left, right and centre. Um, just saying, that's wrong. Um, and so my, on May the 1st, 2019, um, I received a phone call from, from the Met Police who then said that, unfortunately, um, the CPS weren't going to proceed with my charges. Um so he was only going to be charged with four offences, to which I said, were any of them a Bournemouth offence? And they went, no. And I said, well, this is just so wrong. There's still no recognition of him offending in Bournemouth. Um, I, you know, I, I, I didn't have a problem with the fact that my offences didn't go forward, but still there was no recognition of him offending in Bournemouth. Um, despite the fact that the Met Police had said that he had been convicted of a Bournemouth offence. So I was like, well, this is just not right. So I was left with no other option but to go public and waive my right to anonymity, which means I'm publicly putting, putting myself out there as a victim. And also he's able to see that too. You know, I, I'm very aware of that. Um, and so I went and spoke to the Daily Mail because I was like, Bournemouth, 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 why is this not being heard? Um, and then, so that happened. He then got, he pleaded guilty for these extra four offences. Also, the Met Police confirmed to me that other victims had come through from Bournemouth in 2018. They told none, you that. They did tell me that. But none of those offences had been strong enough to, to go through. Um, again, there's a common theme here. So with frustration, I then went to, you know, he was then put again, 
kept in prison and given two life sentences with the option again of parole in, wait for it, six years time by the same parole board, um, which doesn't leave me with a great deal of confidence. So I went to the police crime commissioner for Dorset, who at the time was Martin Underhill. And I waited six weeks to have an appointment with him. By the time I turned up, I was over it. I needed to look after myself and my emotional health. And I was so fed up of being told I was wrong, being gaslit, being shut down. I mean, most people wouldn't have been able to keep going like I have done. And I'm not quite sure how I did it. Um, I think knowing that there are so many victims is what drove me forward to make a difference. And, and to my surprise, I found Martin Underhill to be really helpful at the time. But he began the following conversation with, so I understand you were in the taxi with John Warboys in London. And I went, no, I've been in the BBC News. I've been on the Daily Mail. I've been saying Bournemouth, Bournemouth, Bournemouth. And when the penny dropped with what I was really saying, his face was quite interesting. And he said, well, if what you're saying is right and I'm not disbelieving you, this is a big problem. I then sort of told the story that I've just told. And he said, well, we need to look into this. And so what we did, he said, but obviously I've got to, first of all, prove what you're saying. I said, no, absolutely fine. So he then did um, a number of Freedom of Information Act requests. So this is Dorset um, Police Crime Commissioner. Did a number, well, no, sorry. So the Dorset Police Crime Commissioner took the details of the, the department that had been dealing with the John Moore boys, which was, you know, a special unit had been created. Um, and they refused to talk to him which he'd never experienced before. So he went further up the tree and they refused to talk to him. And they bandied it around to the point where they then forced him, um, came back and said, sorry, in order to get that information, let me be clear about what that information was. Was John Warboys convicted of a Dorset offence? Two, have other victims come through, from, come forward from Bournemouth? If so, how many? Um... So they took, so they put me through two months of, of stonewalling before they then said, sorry, you're going to have to do a Freedom of Information Act request to get that information, which then Martin Underhill did do. And then they came back and said, sorry, we've legally applied for an exemption on that, relation, that information being released, which then goes to what's called a public inquest inquiry, which we then lost. So we were banned from accessing the information that would then prove to Martin Underhill and to Dorset Police what was going on, which then meant he couldn't represent me any further and then couldn't um, help me anymore. So I was then left again in the dark, unsupported, and that was tough. That's unbelievable because, I mean, as you know, I submitted some FOIs um, along those lines weeks and weeks ago and haven't even had an acknowledgement or word back and I'm hoping it's administrative and I'm going to resubmit them through um, New Scotland Yard or whichever but, but I, I think it's possibly because they've already told someone in a senior position that they've, they're exempted from having to give that information over that they don't even give, you know, do the courtesy of replying to me. So then I went to the IOPC, who are the governing body of the police. They responded quite quickly by shooing me on to, to a tech department um, to, to do with the FOI request, 
who then said he couldn't help me and gave me another number to someone who's never, ever, ever responded or replied. And now I've been blanked by them. So I, all, I, all I've wanted, all I have wanted is the truth. And if at any point, Dorset Police or the Met Police had told me, he was, you know, here categorically are the reasons why he hasn't offended in Bournemouth. But I've been told, either way, I've been told he was. Why, if he wasn't offending in Bournemouth, why was the Bournemouth Echo and Dorset Police looking into it in 2009? So someone's lying. So we'll find out. We'll find the truth. And I'm sure that those other women, war boys, victims, survivors in Bournemouth who've read about you, who've seen you in the paper, who've heard your story, they'll be grateful to you because even though they haven't yet come forward and spoken to you, I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. And to the ones that did come forward, because I know there are victims of Bournemouth that came forward. The Met Police told me that. To the ones that came forward, that's such a brave thing to do. And thank you. And I can, I hear you. Clearly, we're going to continue to push until we get some answers. Your courage and determination is next to none. Uh, and we're all grateful to you for doing this. Tell me what the next steps are and what you, what you want. If you had a magic wand, what would you want to happen? Three things. One, I want to sit with Dorset Police and actually go through this with honesty and the Met Police with honesty. You know, that, because I don't need answers, I need change. I need to make sure that no other woman sits there and experiences some of the things that I have experienced. A lot wouldn't make it. Second, we need a more trauma-informed approach throughout the whole of the justice system. Third, I am a big advocate for um, undoing the victim blaming and changing the whole culture we have around sexual violence. And my solution to that is that I feel that um, any jury that sits on a case of sexual violence or victim violence of any kind, prior to going into the case, they watch a video similar to what you do on, a, on an aircraft. You watch a safety video on an aircraft. Um, I feel that every jury on, a, um, on sitting on violent crime should watch a video that it scientifically explains how a victim responds to being under threat. So it's a simple video that talks about fight, flight, freeze and friend so that nobody else sits on a jury and asks, why didn't they ask for help? Why didn't they shout? Why didn't they run away? We need to eradicate that kind of thinking. And that video does it in a scientific and an unbiased way. What are your thoughts? I think that's a great idea. I, I love that idea. I mean, you're a trauma therapist, aren't you? So, yeah. you, you, so you deal with, doubtless, um, some terrible cases of sexual violence, women that have not had justice and it's quite it's quite incredible to me that there are so many women increasing numbers that despite and possibly because of their own trauma and experiences decide to actually immerse themselves 
in dealing with the wider issue, which is what feminism's built on, isn't it? The testimony of women saying it's not just the odd, weird man. It's so many men, so many women, and we need to change the culture. And this is what you're hoping to do, not just at the policing end, but the wider cultural issues that that allow rapists to get away with it. And, and it's men and women as well that have this um, victim-blaming mentality. They don't even realise they're doing, you know, they're doing, oh, why were they work, walking home? Oh, you know, I hear just as many women coming out with victim-blaming and not even realising that that's what they're doing. Um, it's that ingrained that it's our fault. So therefore, of course, we apportion that to other women too. We, we have to stop looking at, at sexual violence through that lens because your jury is looking at it through that lens too and that's a problem and that is why my suggestion of a trauma-informed video that just explains scientifically what happens to somebody when they're under threat because it isn't prescriptive. I think that's an excellent idea and you and I have got work to do um, to expose this um, to, a, to a wider audience. Many people listening to this will will want to thank you and will also I'm sure want to support you so let's keep talking and let's continue this conversation when we hear back from the FOIs eventually and when we're planning our next moves against Dorset Police and the Met. Thank you and I'd be you know I'd be any any help that I can get to talk to the right people to look at getting conversations around making a video like this within the justice system, um, I'd be really, really grateful for because I think it's a really necessary solution to a big gap in people's understanding. Let's, uh, let's see what help we can get to do that and I'm sure we can. Becky is an amazing advocate for women, for all victims and survivors of male violence. And she is a trauma therapist in her day job. So she deals with the kind of fallout that rape and sexual assault brings. For its victims in particular, those women that don't get justice. And remember, for every woman that doesn't get justice, there is a rapist and sex offender walking free, being given license to offend again. See you next time. <laughs>